We learned last week um, about the doctrine of creation. The first four words in the Bible, in the beginning, God, they have so many implications that I could preach probably 50 sermons on just those four words and they would be different sermons every single one. You could get two different preachers and they'll bring so many different things just from four words. As Paul Tripp says, the doctrine of creation is the watershed belief, the line in the sand and the ultimate game changer. It destroys neutrality. You're either on one side of the fence or the other. And the side you choose will shape everything in your life, from the smallest little moments to the decisions of profound consequence. Either this universe is created or it is not. If it is created, then everything has meaning, purpose, value, and most importantly, hope. There's a destination, there's somewhere at the end of this grand story of history, but if nothing is created, if there was no creator, and somehow everything came into existence by itself, then there is no such thing, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, and there's definitely no hope. All you have is the long, cold, heat death of the universe. But today, we're going to be looking at the details of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 uh, to 13. And I'm going to break down the first three days of creation and just briefly explain to you why I interpret the book of Genesis the way that I do. And I understand that the book of Genesis has many different interpretations. Uh, These interpretations are held by committed followers of Jesus who are trying to understand and apply God's word. And they're trying to understand the way that God reveals himself through Genesis. And I don't have time to go through all these interpretations. I'm hoping another day I'll be able to do that with you and explain why I reject some interpretations in favor of another. Um, But I think what we need to do is actually just hear from God himself. What does God say? And we're going to try to take it at face value. So let's dive into the text. I'm going to start from verse 1, but our bulk will be uh, from verse 3 to 13. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now you noticed as you were hearing that read, 
there was kind of a formula that God took every time that he was creating something. There's a sort of formulaic creation. Uh, first, God is going to create using his word. Then he's going to separate things from each other. And then he's going to give them a name. And then he's going to finish up the creation process for that day. And so each day kind of follows this formula. And sometimes God will proclaim it as good. And other times he won't. Sometimes he'll proclaim it good right at the start. Or he'll proclaim it as good right at the end. And this style of literature in the Bible is kind of unique. We don't really see this anywhere else in the Bible, this, this way of writing. And there's this tendency then, because Genesis 1 is unique in the Bible in terms of the way that it's written, everyone wants to have their own interpretation. Everyone thinks, well, it's open um, to different interpretations. Uh, one reading of Genesis 1 is as poetry. And I'm sure we've all heard that. If we've been around the church long enough and we've read Genesis 1, the Uh, people think that this is a poetic description of the creation event, that it's like a song, it's something to be recited. Um, And it's not historical narrative. So if we interpreted it at face value, we're interpreting it wrong. And this argument is based on a few points, and mainly the main point is that there's repetition in there. And we see in Hebrew poetry, there is repetition in Hebrew poetry. Uh, It always begins with, and God said, and it always ends with, there was evening, and there was morning, and it closes out each section. Um, And some people are convinced because it's formulaic, it's poetry. And I'm sure you guys have heard that argument before. Now, it seems to make sense at first. If you don't know much about the, the Hebrew language, you don't know much about Hebrew poetry, you'd be thinking, okay, all right, this sounds like there's elements of Hebrew poetry in it. But Hebrew poetry is very distinct. You only have to have read, remember Psalm 104, I read it right at the start of the service. Do you remember how that was laid out? Very different to Genesis 1, wasn't it? Now, that is quintessential Hebrew poetry, Psalm 104. You can read it again if you want. Um, But Hebrew poetry always has parallelism. They always have like one thing right after another. No parallelism in Genesis 1 at all. We don't see anything like that. There's this like theological nerd thing, but I'm just going to say it right now. There's no vav consecutive. There's this word end in Hebrew that shows up all the time in Hebrew poetry. It ends with an imperfect or perfect at the end of it. We don't see that in um, Genesis 1. And it contains timestamps, something that is a feature of narrative. Constantly, if you read Hebrew narrative, constantly talks about time. You know, the day of this king and such and such. It's always got this timestamp. So what are we talking about? I mean, you may read Genesis in a different way to what I'm going to put forward right now. And feel free to come talk to me about it. I'm not going to bite your head off if you have a different one. Um, I'm always happy to talk about it. Um, but the one thing that I think is pretty certain is that Genesis is not poetry. It's, pro- it's, it's very likely not to be poetry. Um, and I can argue that case if you want me to. And, and Genesis 1, the reason why we're so kind of, you know, it's a bit like, a bit gets on our nerves is because it makes big claims about the nature of reality, doesn't it? Massive claims about the nature of reality. It makes enormous claims in in the way in which everything is created. And because it makes these big claims, and we've grown up being taught something completely different, they collide. And we go, well, how do we make these two make sense together? How do we make these two paradigms make sense? Do they need to make sense? If it doesn't line up with the current paradigms and explanations for the origin and formation of the universe, well, then what do we do? What do we do? Well, rather than having creation occur through natural processes, 
we see in the book of Genesis that it comes by a creation out of nothing. It comes as a special creation from God. And rather than having long periods of time, millions or billions of years, we only get six 24-hour days. We don't have much wiggle room in, the, in Genesis 1. And so what do we make of all this? What do we make of all this? Well, let's dive into the text. We're going to dive into it. We're just going to see it on its own terms. And then if you still have questions, come talk to me afterwards. Day one. What do we see on day one? Right from verse one. Heavens and the earth. There is no word for universe in Hebrew. So how do you say God created all things? How do we say that God created everything that has come into existence? A good way to do it is to do it the way that it says it right here. God created the heavens and the earth. You've got the earth and you've got the heavens. And they pretty much uh, talk about everything that has come into existence. And so that's how you'd say it if you wanted to say that God created everything. And so God spoke, and what does he say? That famous line, you guys can shout it at me. What does it say? The first words that God speaks. Let there be light. No, he does speak that. He wrote it down, that's for sure. But uh, the first thing, let there be light. And what happened? What happened after he said that? There was light, right? Yeah, he spoke it into existence. God is this supreme, super intelligent, all-powerful creator of all things who spoke, and guess what happened? It happened. What he said was so. Light springs forth into existence. It's the thing that connects us to the entire universe. Without light, we cannot see. We cannot behold things like stars. You can't see your spouse. You wouldn't see the beauty of the world or the complexity of microbiology. Light is the gateway into the universe that God created. And by His grace, He has given you the ability to experience it. And you know what's amazing? Is that of the electromagnetic spectrum which makes up light, only 0.0035% is perceivable to the human eye. You can only see the faintest slither of light, and yet what we see is amazing. It is amazing. We see gamma rays, which are smaller than a hydrogen atom, to some extremely low frequency waves, which are over 100,000 kilometers in diameter, larger than the Earth. You want to know how big light is? Smaller than a hydrogen atom, bigger than the Earth. Intense. That's a spectrum of light. Light really is an amazing thing. It is the smallest amount of energy that can be transported, and it is transported of a rate of 299,792,458 meters a second. It's about a billion kilometers an hour. It is the fastest thing we know of. Not only is it super fast, but it also exists as waves and particles. Now, I know uh, probably some, none of you guys are physicists. I mean, raise your hand if you are, and I'll, I'll retract that statement. Um, but that is impossible. You can't exist as a wave and a particle at the same time. How does it happen? We still don't know. I mean, it, it happens. We know that it does. We just can't explain how light can exist as waves and particles. It's this paradox. Light somehow exists. And light is created, just so you know, when atoms or molecules go from a higher state of energy to a lower state of energy. So it makes sense that the first thing we see created is matter. Because light is uh, impinging on matter. When matter goes to a lower state of energy, light is released. And so God creates these amazing structures in the smallest of things in this universe. 
And the crazy thing is, is God spoke this wonderful thing in existence. Can you even wrap your head around light? I mean, you, you actually, you can't. I mean, you can try to, but ultimately you can't. And that's just light. That's a created thing. And God saw the light. And what was it? Good. After hearing all that, I agree wholeheartedly with God in what he says about light. Now, the word good here means pleasant, beautiful, agreeable. Here in Genesis, it carries the meaning that it is both beautiful and fulfilling its purpose. There is beauty in the universe because God spoke that beauty, saw that it was good, and we can see light, and we know that light is beautiful, and it fulfills its purpose. And so that's the first step to our formula. God spoke something into existence. Well, what was the second step again? Separation. Separation. God separates the light from the darkness. Now, the Hebrew word for day and night don't just refer to what time of day it is. It doesn't just mean that it's nighttime, so we're thinking, you know, like 8 p.m. to 5.30 a.m. No, what we're talking about is both uh, a time, but also light and darkness. And so he gives a name to this thing that he created. He gives a name. That's the third step. He names things. Fascinating thing that he names things. In fact, if you read the book of Genesis, you get this idea that names are really important. Have you read any of the genealogies? Flick over to First Chronicles, have a go. Takes a while to get through them. <laughs> names are important. I'm not going to talk about the importance of names this week, but we're going to get into it. And, but the last thing is timestamp. We see a timestamp. It says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, I don't know how much more Genesis could do to try to convince us that this was a 24-hour period. Because it says there was evening and there was morning the first day. It's very clear as to what we need to view this as. It's very clear as to what we need to view this as. He created them via a process that took 24 hours. Now, Hebrew word for day can be used in all sorts of ways. You can say in the day. And that, you know, if I said back in my day, you know, I'm not very old, but let's say I said back in my day when, you know, I was watching Nickelodeon in the morning or something. Um, you know I'm not speaking of a specific day. And you could do the exact same thing in Hebrew. But you know if I'm saying, yeah, it happened in a day. It literally was morning and evening. You know, based on the context, what I mean when I say day. And I think the Hebrew is trying to help us understand what it means. That's why when we, we have a seven-day week. We have a seven-day week because it is rooted in this account. It is set in this account. And so... He did this before we even had the conventional understanding of what constituted a day. The Hebrews are well aware of what a day was. They know what separated light from darkness, the sun. The sun meant that there was light on the earth and the moon kind of gave a little bit of light depending on how much moon was showing to rule over the night. But we have no sun, do we? It's kind of fascinating. There's no sun. What's going on? How can we have a day? Well, it's quite simple. If you think about it, God established the parameters, the set boundaries for what a day is before he created the markers for them. The sun, we will see later, was created for many reasons and functions, but one of those functions was to separate the day from the night, which means the day and the night preceded the sun. That's what the account is telling us. 
And so here ends the first day of creation. What did we see? We saw the creation of the heavens and earth, the creation of light. Uh, Heaven and earth are separate. Light and darkness are separated. And they're named. And they're completed. And they're good. Day one. Day two. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So we already know that water existed in um, in the first day because it said that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we've already got water. Water was created as part of God creating matter. And so God makes this uh, expanse. And God's going to do something with the water, which kind of created the appropriate conditions that were necessary for what's going to occur on day three. He's, he will create this expanse. And so I'm sure you're thinking right now, uh, what on earth is an expanse? What is going on here? Uh, well, we have to look a little closer at the description. We see here that the expanse separates water from the surface of the earth from waters above the surface of the earth. Uh, and this expanse gets a name. What's the name that's here? Heaven, right? Heaven. Well, whatever this expanse is, we know that birds fly in it because it says birds fly in the heavens. We know that clouds form in it. We know that rain comes from it, from the Hebrew understanding. Now, the Hebrews might not have had the same understanding and knowledge of the atmosphere which we do, which is totally fine. They don't need to. God definitely did. Why? Because he made it. Obviously, he would know. He would know what it was. He included it here, in here, enough clues to help us understand what the expanse is. Uh, And before we get into it, the ancient world had a very interesting understanding of the sky. So the heliocentric model that everything rotates around the sun, the fact that the earth is a sphere, those things, you know, we take for granted. But back in the ancient world, what did they think? Well, if you were looking from our perspective, you thought the world was flat. And you looked up at the sky, and a lot of ancient people thought the sky was solid. And the sky was blue. So what do you think was on the other side of the sky? Water. That's what the ancient people thought. They thought that on the other side of the sky was water. Which means that a lot of people, when they interpret Genesis, they think, well, what's going on here is God is creating according to the ancient understanding of the universe. Does that kind of cause a little bit of problem. I mean, this could be problematic because we know the sky is not solid. We know that the reason the sky is blue is not because there's water on the other side of the sky, but because when light comes in, blue light scatters the most um, because it, you know, travels a shorter and smaller waves, and that's why we see the sky as blue. Uh, And this could pose a problem for us as Christians, couldn't it? Because all of a sudden we're like, oh, this is a very old school cosmology. Like, this is an old school understanding of the universe and yet God created the universe. How are we going to reconcile these two things? Well, First Peter 1.21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter in First Peter is claiming that as the text of Scripture comes to us, that the writers of those texts were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Which means we can't be um, surprised to find that language and personality shows up in the text. Have you guys ever read the Apostle Paul? That guy can get feisty. 
You might, if you had a wooden literalism, you would think that God has the same personality as the Apostle Paul. But what we know is that God used the personality of Apostle Paul in his writing to deliver to us God's Word. He uses the personality and the language of the people that he's doing. And so notice that every word was chosen and placed there by the Holy Spirit, and that means if God chose the Hebrews to write Genesis, which he did, we can expect to see Hebrew words. We can expect to see, uh, while there's this ancient understanding of the cosmos, it's flawed at best, we know it's flawed, God didn't import their understanding into the Scripture. He didn't import their understanding of the nature of the universe into the Scripture. God knew that the world had an atmosphere and he knew that the sky wasn't solid. Why? Because he created it. So why doesn't he just write like a nice scientific manifesto? We can slap it down in front of like the most ardent atheist and be like, boom, read that. Checkmate. And then we walk out and we feel good about ourselves. Why didn't God do that? Why couldn't he have just given us this strict scientific manifesto of the exact nature of the universe? Why? Because it was never God's intention to do that. The Holy Spirit, in his infinite wisdom, chose the words available to the Hebrews and put up this word, expanse. Well, when you realize that he called the expanse heaven, you realize that, amazingly, Genesis is making this break with the ancient understanding of the world. God was very careful not to import faulty understandings of the universe into the text even though the people may have held them. The expanse wasn't solid. Why? How do I know that? Because the expanse is called heaven. Guess what happens in heaven? Birds fly there. Clouds form there. I can go through scriptures on it. I should have written them down. Um, but I did heaps of research on it. Um, and there's heaps of scriptures. There's one I want you to listen to. It's 2 Samuel 18.9. And Absalom, this is King David's son, happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and his mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Weird text, why am I quoting that? Funny story. I kind of feel bad for Absalom. <laughs> he gets his head caught in a tree, and his mule just takes off from underneath him, and there he is kind of dangling in space. Did you notice? The language there. Where was he dangling? Between heaven and earth. So if you read it woodenly and literally and you tried to import this ancient understanding, all of a sudden Absalom's just flying off into the clouds up and hitting the solid sky roof. No, of course he isn't. Where does heaven begin? From the ground up. From the ground up. And here you got Absalom. He's obviously not touching the ground. So this was the Hebrew way of getting that across. See, the expanse that God calls heavens begins from the surface of the ground. If that is the case, how can we conclude anything other than this expanse is air? I mean, that's amazing. Then an ancient society like the Israelites, whether knowing it or not, had scripture that accurately described the nature of the atmosphere. You just got to do a little bit more digging. And so God creates this atmosphere on day two meaning that he created the water cycle, the redistribution of water across uh, the whole earth, precipitation, you know, all that stuff from science class. And on this day, we see clouds, mist, fog, rain, and the necessary gases like nitrogen, oxygen, argon, carbon dioxide needed to make this world into the perfect incubator for life. 
Why does this expanse need to come into being right now? Because of day three. But what do we see on day two? Let's follow the formula. We see that this expanse, this atmosphere is spoken to his existence. Its function is to separate waters from the surface of the earth, from that which is in the heaven, in the air, the clouds. He creates the water cycle, and it's named heaven. And there was evening, there was morning the second day. Two days down, one more to go. Day three. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the third day. Now, at this point, we know that the earth is still covered in water. Water's been separated because of an atmosphere, but we've still got a lot of water. And uh, my, my guess is that the earth is completely flat. Now, if you've got a complete, like, flat in terms of a sphere flat, not flat as in a flat earth, you know what, I'm, you know what I mean? And uh, it means that the water definitely would be covering the entire surface. If there's no features, like if there's no mountains or continents jutting up from the ocean, then of course the whole earth is covered in water. But God didn't intend for it to stay that way. Uh, He speaks and gathers the water in order to expose dry land. Immense forces begin to work on the earth and continents begin to rise. Assumedly, rich rock layers full of phosphorus and nitrogen are broken up into sediments, ready for what will happen next the creation of life. For the first time, organic material is created and life has just begun. God causes all kinds of plant life, such as trees, bushes, grass, fungus, algae, maybe bacteria, to spring up from the ground and to begin to feed on the rich nutrients that the earth is providing. These plants are going to provide the necessary complex ecosystems that will support what's going to happen in the next few days. We'll get into it next week. He doesn't just create one kind of plant life, but multiple. His creative genius goes into creating these insanely complex ecosystems that if you study any of them, right, whether it's a rainforest, a mangrove, a tundra, reef, lake beds, river formations, Earth is beginning to take a form that we are used to seeing. All of a sudden, we're starting to relate to it and we see this lush, fruitful, flourishing earth. It's beautiful. And so God separates water from land. He calls them earth and sea. So we see the naming, but he also creates plants and he separates them based on their kinds. And God saw that both of these were good. Now, did you notice something was missing from day two? What was missing? God didn't say anything about whether it was good or not on day two, did he? There was nothing. Why not? Why does God not talk about the expanse? Was the expanse not good? Well, the expanse had not fulfilled its purpose yet. What was the purpose of the expanse? Well, it was not just to separate water, create a water cycle, but to support life. These plants would not exist without an atmosphere. The plants could not exist. Now that that life had come from the expanse, it was working properly God says it's good now. 
because day two and day three are linked together. There's a purpose that he had. And so what do we learn from this creation narrative? I mean, I could go on and on and on about all the different kinds of plants and all their amazing qualities. I'll leave that up to you to go and look in if you're interested in it. But what does this mean? God is not only the origin of all things, he's the center of all things. Not only did he create, but he holds it all together by the power of his might. We know this from other scriptures. Not only does he speak things into existence, but they continue to exist by his will. He allows them to continue to exist. He supports them to continue to exist. And we learn that God created all things for his purposes. He is the only one who can truly declare that something is good. He is the standard by which everything must be measured against. He is the one that spoke and he is the one that defines. And if God created all things, then our lives never belong to us. We are not automatically, or we're not actually autonomous beings. We're dependent. You're dependent on God for everything. Every single thing in your life is a good gift, a grace from the Lord. Every meal, every breath, every heartbeat, every relationship comes to us by sheer grace. Every good brewed beer comes because God allows that to come into existence. You and I don't have the right to think, desire and act and speak as if our lives belong to us. Because newsflash, it doesn't. We don't own our lives. Come on. We can barely do anything. We can't bring anything into existence. If God created all things, then things like logic, reason, rationality, truth, they all exist. And we can trust and realize that they all exist. If God was here in the beginning, and if everything in the universe belongs to him, then what he says is true. And whatever disagrees with him, by its fundamental organic nature, is false. Everything that disagrees with God, by its nature, has to be false. The doctrine of creation draws the line clearly in the sand. There is truth and there is falsehood. And there is no open catalogue of equally valid ideas. There is only truth and falsehood. Romans 1, 19-20 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Genesis 1 makes the argument that all the complexity, from the speed and nature of light, to the clouds above us, to the largest gum tree you've ever seen, to the smallest bioluminescent algae that you've seen at the beach. Has anyone seen those, by the way? Amazing. So good. At night time, just look out, the waves light up. Oh, it's the best. All of it screams to you one thing. There is a God. It tells you there is a God. And if he made all those things, they belong to him. And guess what? We belong to him too. We must give an account to him. It's crazy. If all creation obeys God, they all fit within the mold that he has set, whether it's a single cell organism or the speed of light, who are we to raise our fists in rebellion towards him? Who are we to say to God, no? And here we are sitting here, probably today, multiple times, telling God, no. Who are we to explain away all this intelligence and complexity and to rob God of his glory? But we're just not left here. Praise Jesus. 
that he has set us free from this rebellion and sin, that previously we said no to God and he has made us say yes. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Listen to this language. Oh, one of the best verses. Write it down if you've got anything there. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, praise God. He didn't leave us in chaos and darkness, not knowing, alone in this world, worried that we're just adrift, no hope, no purpose, destined for judgment before God. That same God who created light awakened us to the truth of his glory in Jesus. How can we turn away from such a salvation? The same God that said, let there be light, guess what? When you became a Christian, shine that same light in your heart to reveal to you the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, what wonderful truths we've heard today from your word. How amazing you are. And Lord, it's crazy that we can walk day by day seeing the beauty of your creation and often we don't even stop to thank you. We don't even stop in just pure amazement at how wonderful these things are. Lord, help us this week to just see the creative beauty of this creation and uh, just reflect on your awesomeness. Lord, you've shown us your glory partially through the things that you have made. Help us to not be rebellious and shake our fists at you thinking that we're so great. Help us, Lord, to humbly submit, to come into existence with your creation the way that you intended us to help us at this church to be a little outpost of your glory sharing it with these people i pray in jesus name amen